It's Thursday, April 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The threat is over. Sol Pais, the Florida student who was said to have an infatuation with the Columbine shootings, made her way to Colorado, bought a shotgun and ammunition, and was seen as a credible threat which prompted many school closures, has been found dead. My producer Miranda joins us to discuss her story and what was in her social media that led authorities to think she could hurt herself and others. Next, as the opioid crisis continues to grip the country, federal prosecutors have arrested 60 physicians and pharmacists across five states with illegally handing out opioid prescriptions. Some of the doctors accused were trading drugs for sex, giving prescriptions to Facebook friends, and even pulling teeth to justify pain pills. Terry DeMio, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer, joins us for this prescription crackdown. Finally, researchers have found a way to restore some activity to pig brains after death. The findings could reshape the way we understand the limits of the brain and could open up new avenues for treating strokes and brain diseases. Daniela Hernandez, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the experiments worked. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Because of her procurement of a weapon immediately upon arriving here, we we considered her to be a credible threat. She has expressed uh, an infatuation with uh, Columbine and the events, the shooting there that happened uh, tragically 20 years ago. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking about this story of Sol Pais, who was the woman who was wanted over these Columbine threats. She was found dead. She was a Florida student. They said that she was making a pilgrimage to Columbine. We're right by the 20th anniversary of the shooting there. And they said that her threats had prompted this massive police hunt, closed hundreds of schools. She was found dead by an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. And just the way police were describing her, they said she was armed and extremely dangerous. And that led to the decision to keep about half a million students home in two dozen school districts. So Miranda, tell us a little bit more about Sol Pais. She traveled to Colorado on an airplane. She then took an Uber to a gun shop and purchased a shotgun as well as ammunition. There was a weird thing with the plane because she bought three plane tickets on three consecutive days. Like she maybe she wasn't sure what day she was actually going to get out to Colorado, but that even intensifies what her plan was. She was going to make it to Colorado. The sheriff say she didn't have any help from friends in the area, just a fascination with the Columbine area and a mass school shooting that took place almost 20 years ago to the day. And the sensitivities are high, obviously. Nobody wants a repeat mass shooting. That's why, out of an abundance of caution, all the schools were closed. They just wanted to be extra safe on that. And it just leads us into this whole thing that this whole notion of people, they call them Columbiners. Two guys from Columbine, they're kind of these dark folk heroes in these dark corners of the internet where people go through their manifesto. They they had the carefully planned massacre. It's remembered. It's studied. People celebrate it. And it's shown up in a lot of some more recent mass shootings. The school security officer, he says that Columbine gets a lot of threats. They get a lot of odd visitors. Nothing of this magnitude has prompted them to shut down major schools and half a million students to keep at home. He said, but these people who worship the Columbine shooters are frequently depressed. They're alienated or even mentally disturbed. And they're drawn to this Columbine subculture because they see it as a way to kind of lash out at the world and find a sense of community with other people who are like-minded. And we're going to describe some of the social media postings that we found from Sol Pais, and you're going to find those exact same 
things, all those, uh, you know, being depressed and just kind of being angry. Those dots get connected. Yeah. Let's talk about real quick how students remembered her at school because she went to Miami Beach High. Classmates described her as smart, unassuming, maybe socially awkward at times. Yeah, they said that they were really surprised by her bizarre run from the law, that this wasn't anything that they could associate with her character. They said she was smart. She was enrolled in AP and honors classes that she usually kept to herself. And one student, an 18-year-old senior named Justin Norris, said she didn't seem any type of way. She was just bad at starting conversation. Even neighbors said she you know, never was mean or anything, but she would never make eye contact with you and just kind of kept to herself. So why did authorities want to take so many precautions? They said she was a threat. They said that she was infatuated with the Columbine story and the Columbine killers. Where did all this come from? Apparently, she had this profile on a website, Listography, where she went by the name Dissolved Girl. And she had all sorts of postings there, drawings, things that referred to Columbine. Although they said that most of her infatuation, they said, was spoken. It wasn't necessarily all on this profile. So I guess maybe she talked about it a lot with other people. But what was on this listography profile that she had? Some of the stuff she had on there is kind of disturbing. They're drawings of guns, a lot of ramblings and musings about being depressed and suicidal ideation. Uh, here's something that she wrote. Being alive is effing overrated. How do I pull it out of me? I'm effing empty. She would often quote lyrics to songs that were sad and depressing. She did one from a song called The Nobodies, which is sung by Marilyn Manson, said to have inspired the 1999 Columbine shootings, as well as John Lennon's killer, claiming that he felt like a nobody. Her tagline, it said, be the best killer you can be. Yeah, on one of the diary pages that were on the website, it says, the fact of the matter is I was the one unfortunate enough to be soul. I know my time is running out. I am ensuring that my time is running out. Life is much easier when everything leads up to one day, one day, which, you know, will occur. I mean, you even think even more why she would buy three consecutive. She was planning this. She wanted to get out there. Wasn't sure exactly how it was going to happen, but she was sure that it was going to happen. On March 29th, which is two days before the date of the final journal entry for her website, she actually posted on a gun forum asking for yeah. advice from Colorado residents how a non-Colorado resident could purchase a shotgun there. Someone using her name posted asking, hey, I'm a Florida resident. I'm planning a trip to Colorado in the next month or so, and I want to buy a shotgun when I'm there. I'm wondering what restrictions apply to me. And, and interestingly, Colorado, for certain types of guns, doesn't have a waiting period. Right. For long guns, rifles, and shotguns, you can take that stuff with you. And people responded on these forums right away. She even responded back. Thank you for taking the time to answer my question. She says, I really do appreciate it. I'm flying in, but I'm planning on a car trip home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it all matches that she was really wanted to come out to Colorado and get a gun there. And when they were alerted to the fact that they had been interacting and helping a person who was the subject of a massive FBI manhunt, one forum member replied, well, that's kind of scary. Yeah, right. Her infatuation with the perpetrators of Columbine, they said it was mostly spoken and there was no specific threat towards a school, but all of the stuff put together really just spooked everybody. And you, and you have to be careful of this. In one of her other posts, she said, I feel like a pot of scolding water on the verge of boiling over. This just scares people. You know, mm -hmm. you, you see a person at that tipping point, you see it on the social media stuff. That's why they say, if you see something, say something. For now, everybody's safe. The threat is over. And Sol Pais has uh, been found dead. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar.
one of the more gruesome incidents was a dentist who was pulling teeth wow. and billing for that. And of course, there's the sexual favors, right. and that's always a lurid and unsettling kind of a detail. Joining us now is Terry DeMio, covering the opioid epidemic for the Cincinnati Enquirer. We have you on to talk about this case in Ohio and Kentucky, where doctors were charged in this pain pill bust. They were acting like drug dealers. Federal prosecutors charged about 60 physicians and pharmacists with handing out opioid prescriptions. This is the biggest crackdown of its kind. The details are crazy. Some of the doctors are accused of trading drugs for sex, giving prescription to Facebook friends, unnecessarily pulling teeth to justify some of these pain pill prescriptions. Tell us what was going on with this. This was a regional effort in the Appalachian states of Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, and Alabama to get prescribers who were acting like drug dealers. There were 350,000 prescriptions written by these 60 people, which included doctors, nurses, pharmacists, anybody who could prescribe or distribute an opioid. And they did things that one might raise their eyes to. There was a man named Jeff Young, who was a nurse practitioner in Jackson, Tennessee, who called himself the Rock Doc and was trading prescriptions for sexual favors and for cash. You mentioned that there was 350,000 improper prescriptions given out. Just to put a number on how many pills actually went out, prosecutors say that 32 million pain pills could have been put in the hands of patients. So that many prescriptions translates to that many pills being out there. They created a special task force, a strike force, they called it, to look into all of this. How did that work? The Appalachian Regional Prescription Opioid Strike Force had a a lot of prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, and DEA and FBI agents for each of these regions um, that are Appalachian in the five states. And what they did was they started out with analytics. They got prescription monitoring databases and Medicaid billing and different public health billings and kind of tried to match up first who might look like they're prescribing too many pain pills or why they're prescribing to particular individuals. So they did all that first, and then that gave them the ability to kind of zero in on individuals who looked very suspicious, and many of those same people were the ones indicted. This story is really the kind of of story that pisses a lot of people off. We know that the country is going through this crisis, this opioid epidemic. People all across the country are just addicted to these pills. And when they can't get these things, they move on to other stuff. They move on to heroin and it just creates a bigger problem. These people that were arrested, they said that they were seeing a total of about 28,000 patients at the time of their arrest. One of the questions I have, do we know if these doctors were all connected in some way? Was it like an organized effort between them or are these just individual doctors handing out shady prescriptions? They are not connected. There are certain indictments that might name, say, three individuals from one pain clinic, a nurse Mm -hmm. practitioner who's illegally prescribing under the supervision of such and such doctor and such and such owner. But yeah, these are all individuals really, which almost makes it It uh, it more jaw-dropping. Yeah, because these are the people, the doctors that we're hoping are trying to contain a problem like this. And, uh, you know, to just hear that they are in their own separate little areas doing this. Let's get back into how some of these doctors, these people were doing this stuff. One of the examples is a physician was collecting $5,000 a month in rent from a pharmacy 
located in his office who was providing these pills out. So how were some of these schemes working out? There were several schemes. Some of them are more traditional, like, for example, doing unnecessary procedures that they can then bill Medicaid for and then charge money for that and provide pain pills for the patient. One of the more gruesome incidents was a dentist who was pulling teeth and billing for that. And of course, there's the sexual favors, and that's always a lurid and unsettling kind of a detail. A lot of these physicians and nurse practitioners were in more rural or semi-rural places, which is kind of where the whole opioid crisis started right here in Appalachia. You've been covering this opioid epidemic for a long time. There at the Cincinnati Inquirer, you were part of a group who won a 2018 Pulitzer Prize for reporting on opioids. The series, I think, was called Seven Days of Heroin. Tell us how big of a problem this is in that area and what are officials trying to do to contain it, to help the people that are affected by this? It is a huge problem, although we're seeing a little bit of relief or we saw a little bit of relief in 2018. But Ohio was second in the nation for overdose deaths in 2017. And West Virginia there was first. We've got people that then mainly moved on to heroin and now more frequently fentanyl. So we have people overdosing quite frequently. The good news is that we have amped up the availability of Narcan, which as you know, blocks the opiate receptors in the brain and, and can bring someone back, revive someone who's an opiate overdose. And that's so important. You know, they're getting these pills, they're going through this cycle of addiction with the pills. And from your reporting, 80% of people who use heroin first misuse prescription opioids. So it's important that while they're arresting these doctors and physicians and taking them out of the equation, the other half of the equation is helping these people get the right help that they need to get over this kind of stuff. Terry DeMio, covering the opioid epidemic for the Cincinnati Inquirer. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you so much. They did not see any activity, brain-wide activity, when the brain was hooked up to the machine. And that's a really important point because it's those brain-wide functions that scientists believe underpin things like pain. Joining us now is Daniela Hernandez, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about some interesting science news. Scientists were able to restore some brain function after death in a bunch of pig brains that they use for this experiment. It's very early on and a long way from having applications in humans, but a lot of people are saying that this could reshape the way we understand the brain's limits, how we think of brain death. So tell us a little bit about this experiment, Daniela. The findings are really technically intricate and interesting. One scientist that I spoke to described it as a technological tour de force. It really took a lot of work, not just on the neuroscience side, but chemistry and engineering and radiology. It was really a team effort that took, that was years in the making. In the end, they said that what they were able to do was not recreate another living brain, but it was a cellularly active brain. What they did was they created a machine called BrainX, which is kind of like a dialysis machine almost. It, it was pumping this nutrient-rich fluid, like a blood-like fluid, through the brain, and it was pumping it in rhythm as if the animal heart was beating it through. What they were able to find is that the brain was recovering, which previously they thought without oxygen, the brain fails very quickly. 
and the brain was able to recover a little bit. How did they perform the experiment? These are pigs that were killed to provide us with bacon and other and other meat. So no animals, they say, were specifically killed for this experiment. They hooked up the brain to this device and they were able to recover some functions specifically related to the blood vessels. And so they were able to get, not blood, but the blood-like substance that they also developed for the experiment into the brain. And that was seemed to be enough to keep its morphology going and to have it be metabolically active. But one thing to really keep in mind and, and, and clear is that they did not see any activity, brain-wide activity, when the brain was hooked up to the machine. And that's a really important point because it's those brain-wide functions that scientists believe underpin things like pain and awareness right. and and then make a human or an animal what they are. And then they in no way saw that. That calls into some ethical questions into this experiment because, let's be clear, they're not necessarily reanimating brains or anything like that. And part of the solution right. that they were pumping through the brain had synaptic activity blockers so that the brain wouldn't accidentally wake up and feel pain or sense what was happening or gain consciousness again, things like that. They had synaptic activity blockers there. I think they also had scientists ready with other things to cool the brain down in case something like that happened. You know, it's an experiment. They don't know exactly what's happening. So there's a lot of ethical questions in, but they did go through the pains of, of trying to not to wake up a brain or anything like that. Everybody I spoke to made it very clear that along the timeline during which these experiments were being planned out, there were multiple conversations with people whose specialty is is ethics. And so it seems from my reporting that the scientists were very concerned about that, that they try to take the appropriate steps to make these sets of experiments as ethical as possible. It's also unknown what kind of activity this kind of brain would have, right? That you were taking it out of the animal and putting it in a quote-unquote foreign, unnatural environment. And so it's unclear whether it, there were a Activity, like what kind of activity would it be? And so as a first step, they wanted to just be really careful about how they went about it. What are people looking for? Uh, from my understanding, you know, it could change how we treat strokes, uh, anything that has to do with pumping oxygen and, and blood into the brain. Yes, scientists are excited about the potential to study things like stroke or other conditions that limit or reduce the amount of blood and oxygen going to the brain because this tool, this technology gives them the ability to really study variables that have to do with microcirculation and other kinds of things that are important in those conditions. And so it gives them, this adds another tool to their toolbox, so to speak, with which they can begin to understand those conditions better, for which things like stroke, like there aren't a lot of interventions, but it's really important to be able to understand what's happening at the cellular level and this might get them there. Yeah, it's just so interesting. You know, it sounds like a science, like a weird, creepy science experiment, but the implications and what we learn from it can be very far reaching and it just kind of changes what we thought the brain could do in the first place or how the brain reacts after death. Daniela Hernandez, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.